Fab Gab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Catherine Wolf from St. Lawrence University to discuss her paper, What's Wrong with Speciesism? Toward an Anti-Ableist Reimagining of an Abused Term. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Kate. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you here. You too. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Well, thanks for coming on the on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. To get started, you could give the listeners just the elevator pitch for this paper. Sure. Um, so this paper had a few different goals and objectives. Um, the thing that motivated it most was an interest in trying to name and illustrate the ableism inherent in some dominant critiques of speciesism that are out there today, namely the work of Peter Singer and um, to a lesser extent, uh, at least in terms of what the paper was able to cover, Jeff McMahon. Um, but I also wanted to illustrate the often unnoted commitments to animal welfare in the work of some prominent um, critics of Singer and McMahon's work. So a worry that, um, that I have is that when it comes to thinking about animal ethics and thinking about disability, that these two communities of concern have um, become pitted against each other. And um, that the reason for that comes largely from um, the work of Singer, which is openly, um, I think, um, ableist. But in order to defend against the concerns about ableism, um, those in the community that advocates for consideration um, for people with disabilities that equals that of anybody else in the human community often get called out as being speciesist or being um, flagrantly unconcerned with animal welfare. And I've always found that to be very much not the case. So it was an interest in showing both that, that these critics coming from the disability community are right to say there is ableism in Singer's work, but also to say that, um, that those voices taking that position um, are advocates in many cases for animal ethics themselves. And so these two, um, these two communities don't have to be pitted against one, one another as much as they've been. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I wondered if, I kind of wondered where the motivation came for writing this paper. Have you been interested in kind of animal ethics for a while or more is this coming from a different place? Yeah, so there's a few different motivations. I would say there is a very strong um, emotional pinpoint for me, which is that um, I was at this conference that happened at Stony Brook University back in 2008 um, in the room when this very charged um, conversation took place between uh, Peter Singer and Eva Kate. And Eva Kate later became my dissertation advisor. So I developed a pretty intimate um, and ongoing relationship with her. Um, I, I really think highly of her work and revere her scholarship. And I think she's done an incredible amount to advocate for people with cognitive disabilities. Um, and that moment uh, was from before I knew Eva well, before we had an established relationship, before I knew much about um, bioethics as a discipline. And um, 
it just stayed with me as sort of this um, this burning point in my chest, you know, because I, because I saw her um, in pain and I saw her in pain for very good reason. And I did nothing in that moment. Um, and so in part, it was an effort to um, to try and speak back to a moment that had left me feeling a certain kind of pain and discomfort and um, trying to um, to honor Eva's work and say what I didn't say then. And um, and try to do that in a way that both um, both respected the quite outstanding commitments to animal ethics in the work of Peter Singer, but also um, didn't shy away from um, being very clear about the problems that are also there in his work. Um, so yeah, I would say before before I knew Eva and before I, I started down the path that I did working on my dissertation with her, I was more invested in animal ethics and less knowledgeable by far about issues related to disability. So um, both of my parents are veterinarians. We grew up um, sort of being the family that everybody would bring like the stray cat, you know, or the, like random dog that was injured to, they'd bring it to her house. So I spent a long time in my childhood caring for animals. I felt really um, pretty intimate connections with animals, both wild and domestic. And, um, and I had a pretty strong commitment to certain pieces of, of animal liberation. And so just see, seeing what happened, you know, in that conference really, really shook me and started me down a course of, of thinking some more about these things. Um, and they've been with me for a long time. So yeah, so I think that was the motivation. And then you know, why did it come out when it did? It's a different kind of question, you know, <laughs> um, that, that probably has a lot of moving parts to it. But, um, but yeah, that was the motivation of just really wanting to say something about a moment um, that felt wrong and that I was present to and I didn't speak to when it actually happened. Mm -hmm. And then a worry that I had in the course of writing the paper um, was that I reopened something, you know, that Eva herself, um, I don't know, might not have benefited from having reopened. Um, so that was sort of my biggest fear about this paper. Mm. Yeah. Did you talk to her about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, she was, I presented a version of it at the APA conference um, this past winter and she responded to it there. Um, so, um, so yeah, that was, that was very helpful. Um, and I would say that in a sense, I mean, I, I did do the thing that I really didn't want to do, which is that I took her back to this painful moment in that dialogue and, um, and we had to rehash it and we rehashed it publicly again, you know, mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, my sense is that um, is that she feels like even if certain people um, in the animal ethics community that you know stand by Singer's work and Singer's positions um, don't aren't moved by any of her objections, that perhaps other people in the audience, you know, hearing hearing these conversations and hearing these disagreements and hearing this kind of discourse will be and probably are just like I was when I sat there that day. Um, so I didn't say anything. She didn't know, you know, um, but, it, but I was very much, very much uh, affected by, by what she said, you know, and it wasn't just her emotion. So that's something that feels important to stress. It was like she, her philosophical grit, you know, she really, she really stood up in an intellectually rigorous way um, in a moment that was also, you know, intensely emotionally painful. And mm -hmm. um, that's, that's incredibly impressive and incredibly admirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to kind of change 
unpack a little bit, just because I think it would be really interesting to hear about um, how in the paper you see being able to kind of rescue some of the um, some of the animal welfare work from Singer and make that um, amenable, at least, if not like completely compatible to um, a disability rights kind of point of view, or at least, um, you know, basically to make it non-ableist. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you kind of see these two pieces fitting together. Yeah, so thanks for asking me that. Um, so this is this is something that I really um, sort of hemmed and hawed over in the course of writing the paper. So did I ultimately at the end of the day want to say, you know, that like like the title, title of the paper kind of announces, I was thinking of that title, what's wrong with speciesism in two ways. The, and one of them was, is there anything wrong with speciesism, right? Is it, is it a false problem? Has it been falsely named as a problem when in fact it isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wondered if that was ultimately where, where I would wind up, you know? And um, part of me is inclined to think that it is a false problem, or at least the naming of it is a false problem because the naming of it um, draws on this analogy with racism and sexism. And um, Eva herself has done some really outstanding work um, illustrating why that analogy is perhaps just not right. So um, so her, her claim that she makes in um, paper called um, On the Margins of Moral Personhood that I think came out in 2005 is that, um, racism and sexism, um, yes, they do involve uh, group-based thinking, right, and sortals based on groups, but um, they justify themselves through claims about properties. So it's not just this group is better than that group, it's this group is better than that group because, you know, being a man means being intellectually superior, Um, being a woman means being overly emotional, you know, um, or, you know, (laughs) other claims like that, right? So, so yeah, so her claim is that, you know, when it comes to um, what Singers calls speciesism in some cases, which is just really this position that every human being um, should be considered as having equal moral status, regardless of their capacities, um, which is really, I mean, just if you take away the name speciesism from that, it's a deeply dehumanizing objection, right? I mean, the idea is potentially that um, that some human pe- human beings are simply not morally equal, right? Don't have the same moral standing as others. And that to assume otherwise is something analogous with racism, sexism, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's wrong. I think that's the huge problem. And yet, um, ultimately, I wound up wanting to say that um, I do think the term can be useful and can be disentangled from the place that Singer has led it. Um, And part of that is a practical move, you know, less than a philosophical one. So practically it is just so deeply written in discourse now um, around these issues. It's in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, I think. PETA uses it, right? I mean, it's out there. People use this term. And when I teach this material, um, my students gravitate towards the term. You know, they, they find it useful, but I don't think they buy in um, for the most part into um, the ableist pieces of it. So what is it that people are grabbing onto? So my sense is that it's probably not Singer's highly inflammatory and deeply controversial claims about 
the human community involving people that are not equal to others, right? I mean, that's, that's such a laden, right? Really, really challenging claim. Um, it's that, it's the idea that um, there is something that we need to be deeply concerned about when it comes to privileging human interests over those of all other creatures, right? Um, and um, Christine Korsgaard has this really powerful um, line about uh, this idea in her recent book, Fellow Creatures, and I quoted in the paper. So she says, we should not confuse either the thought that we owe different things to animals than to people, or the thought that sometimes we may legitimately exercise a partiality towards our own species with the thought that human beings are more important than animals generally. So, um, so my hope was that if, you, if we stop confusing those things and we take speciesism to refer to the thought that human beings are more important than animals generally, there's no longer a problem of ableism there, right? And you can, you can use the term, it can be effective, it can be ethically meaningful. Um, and I actually think that it's what a lot of people in the animal liberation community want speciesism to be about already. It's just that a few very prominent voices have pushed it in this other direction. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And when you put it that way, it just seems really obvious. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, I feel that way too. I, I was thinking about that. It feels kind of common sense, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that most people who care about animal welfare, care about animal liberation, that's what they really, really buy into around the idea of speciesism. That um, that we need to stop trivializing the interests of non-human animals. We need to stop, you know, immediately assuming that we can treat ourselves as vastly superior to them. Um, that you know, just vast, um, vast amounts of violence that go on on a very routine basis, you know, towards non-human species are acceptable. Yeah. Um, they're, they're deep moral problems. And yet none of that means that we need to just treat, you know, people in the human community with any less, you know, moral significance than we currently do. Yeah. Part of your argument is kind of, it's a, it's about, um, responding to this question that Singer, and I think McMahon too, put to not just Kite, but I think like people in general who holds um, a view yeah. about a certain view about moral status of, of people, humans. And um, from the conference, Singer says to Kite, can you tell us some of these morally significant psychological capacities in which you think the human beings, and let's talk about real ones, are superior to pigs or dogs or animals. And so Singer, I think Singer's view is like, you need to point us to some kind of capacity. Show me the thing that the human can do um, that this other animal can't do and show me why this is different. And Kite takes a completely different approach to establishing moral status. And I find that really interesting. So I kind of wanted to ask you about that and how you um, use that in your paper, the kind of relationship focus that Kite has compared to this capacity focus that Singer has to mm -hmm. motivate your argument too. 
Yeah, right. And you're right. So Jeff McMahon also asked a version of that question at the conference. Um, and, um, and they were both very emphatic about it. Like, like Jeff McMahon at one point said, you know, an answer to this question, this one question will shut Peter Singer up for good. Um, you know, that's what you need to answer, right? And, and it will do the trick, right? Um, and yeah, there were a couple of things, you know, in, in going back to that moment and um, looking at the transcripts from, you know, the, the particular wording from the conference, there are a couple of things that really struck me. So, um, so one was um, that he used the word morally superior in asking that question, right? So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about um, equality. It wasn't about, you know, it was an assumption that it had already been assumed, right? That people should be treated as morally superior, right? Uh, all people, right? Regardless of cognitive capacities, they're just morally superior. Um, and now, you know, give me the reason why based on um, psychological capacities and properties. And, um, and so thinking about it closely, um, I thought, first of all, he made a false assumption in that moment, right? That actually there was nobody who had asserted, right, blatantly, right, that human beings, all human beings were morally superior, right? What was being insisted upon instead was that all human beings were morally equal to one another. <laughs> that was the claim coming from um, from the people that he was in conversation with in this you know, very heated um, conference, right? It was not about moral superiority. So, um, so it sort of snuck in there, right? And it makes it look, in fact, like there's some sort of um, uh, that, that there's some sort of attack on um, moral equality that's coming from the side of those that are advocating for the rights of people with cognitive disabilities, right? But my take was that that just wasn't true. That wasn't what was happening at the conference at all. Instead, it was about insisting every human being is equal, right? And pointing out that Singer makes arguments and takes stances where he's adamant that all human beings are not equal. So that was the first thing that I just wanted to highlight, right? Was that um, that there was no claim, like he was he was up against a false enemy, right? He was making a bit of a straw man out of um, those he was in dialogue with in that moment. Mm. Um, um, and then the, the other um, the other point was, yeah, that that I wanted to try to answer this question in a way that was about insisting on um, relationships. That in fact, the, the question was wrong. The question sort of presupposed that ethics and sort of ethical standing had to be parsed out in terms of properties and capacities. And I wanted to say like, like Kate does and like many other feminist thinkers who use a relational methodology do, that, um, that instead um, relationships can be an inroads to moral standing, right? It's not just about properties and capacities. Um, and part of why I went to Levinas in the paper, um, which was some, somewhat controversial, I know for a lot of feminists, Levinas is not sort of somebody that people, you know, see as part of the feminist community, not somebody that people are friendly to, but he is so adamant um, in his thinking that, um, that as soon as you're in the domain of thinking about properties, right, or sort of what he thinks of as ontology altogether, you've elided ethics and you've, and you've entered into a place of, of potential um, violence, right? And ethics is instead um, a moment of encounter um, and provocation and appeal that um, interrupts and comes before all of that kind of um, delimitation and demarcation and categorizing. Um, and as soon as as soon as you've slipped into that other mode, you've left you left ethics behind, right? Um, and potentially done harm in that act. 
impact. So yeah, so I, I wanted to just sort of lean even more heavily into thinking about, you know, that the fact that that, that, prop, that question um, assumed that ethics had to take this, this one approach um, around capacities uh, and properties when in fact, um, I didn't think it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about Levinas for a second then. Okay. <laughs> let's um, do it. Because <laughs> I think that um, when, I think that the way in which you use Levinas here is like really quite interesting and powerful. Um, the way that he's responding to his experiences living through the Holocaust, um, seeing, like witnessing the violence done to others when you make property-based accounts of um, moral status. So do you think that Levinas can be kind of made friendly towards feminist philosophy in general, or do you think that this is just a particular instance where Levinas has really specific answers to just this kind of question? Yeah, so um, so that kind of goes into more of the convoluted backstory of my paper, which is that, um, in fact, um, I sort of... Uh, found myself writing this paper in part out of um, an earlier attempt to write a paper about Levinas and animal ethics. Um, and I was realizing that um, some of the things that I, I thought I had to say that, that were perhaps um, the most significant potential kind of original contribution to um, writing about animal ethics from a Levinasian perspective um, would speak to disability as well. <laughs> and there's very, very little scholarship whatsoever about Levinas around disability. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the backstory, but yeah, the, the bigger question. So um, I think there are some, some real issues um, with Levinas's ethics um, in certain moments of his writing um, where he, um, I don't know, potentially treats uh, the, the certain figures right in his writing that play a certain role um, are highly feminized. And in fact, I think like one common, common critique from a feminist perspective of Levinas's work is that um, he, he makes these demands about um, ethical asymmetry, right? Like sort of, uh, you, you, are, you are radically um, subservient almost, right? Held hostage is his language. So you're held hostage by the appeal and the call of the other. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, perhaps that resonates one way for a male audience who isn't used to necessarily taking on certain burdens of care and um, answering to vulnerability and answering to other others' needs. But um, when when women have historically been put in more of that position, well, it, it sounds a different kind of alarm, right? And it and it potentially just further further entrenches um, certain forms of injustice. So I think that's a fair critique and a fair concern um, at the same time that I think, I think there's a fair bit to be said for, um, for thinking about ethics in the, 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 the way that's very deeply about the encounter, you know, and provocation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, another thing that sometimes people say about Levinas when it comes to, um, you know, his relationship to feminism is that, um, especially care ethics, right? Care ethics is, are about 
Carothesis are about thinking about real concrete intimate relationships, right? There's something about Levinas's work that feels very abstract, right? That, that, that in, he's talking about these moments of encounter, but it's never, you know, with, with this person. Um, but that's not fully true. <laughs> so um, like some, some of his work on animal ethics, actually it is like, um, like his writing um, from when he was interred um, in uh, the camp as a prisoner of war under the Nazis. Um, it's about his encounter with a dog named Bobby. And mm -hmm. I, that's one of the moments like I will always, you know, stand out for me in his writing. And mm -hmm. it's very concrete. And he struggles with whether or not because he's a dog, you know, Bobby can play the role of the other, right? Mm -hmm. um, in his writing the way that human beings do. And yet um, he sees Bobby as, uh, as the, the one sort of being that saw him in his humanity, you know, everybody around him was seeing him as just this thing, right? She talks about other people stripping him of his human skin, right? Mm -hmm. Bobby, this dog was the one that saw him and sort of, um, you know, uh, called him, called him back to himself, but maybe the way one, one way to put it or, um, you know, Bobby was the ethical respondent in that moment, right. you know, yeah. and that's a deeply concrete moment of encounter. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I think, I think Levinas can go there, um, you know, even if, uh, yeah, he, he does veer more to what feels abstract at times, right? Um, I think he's at his best when, when it's about sort of a concrete encounter, right? Thinking through a concrete encounter. Mm. That's just really, really interesting. I, I don't know very much about the work of Levinas. It makes me want to read more. Um, so I think we're kind of coming towards the end of our time here. So I wanted to ask you if there's one or two um, key messages that you hope readers will take away from this paper. Okay. Yeah, I have a few things that I was thinking about. Um, so I guess, I guess one um, major hope of mine would be that, you know, somebody reading this paper, um, thinking about the question um, with which um, Peter Singer charged Eva Kate and, with, and with, with which Jeff McMahon charged others in that conference, um, that people would come away thinking, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that question actually doesn't need a response in order to get to the conclusion that um, all human beings uh, warrant the same moral status and standing, right? Mm -hmm. um, that all human beings um, are equal amongst themselves, right? Um, that instead you can ethically justify that position through a relational approach that steers clear of property and capacity-based thinking altogether. In mm -hmm. fact, you know, Singer's own er early work um, it seems like he's going to go there and then he winds up someplace else. Um, so yeah, so just, you know, just about the innumerable, innumerable insights of a relational approach to ethics and um, the many, many rich, rich avenues for, I think, um, ethical betterment um, that they can open up um, in, in all different directions, right? Not necessarily just about disabilities, not necessarily about animal ethics, um, but uh, I don't know, thinking about, um, systemic racism, thinking about um, immigration justice, thinking about many, many of the very pressing and current issues today. That's mm -hmm. where I always go as sort of a starting point. You know, what can a relational lens to these ethical and political issues bring to bear and reveal about the situation that we might not otherwise see? Um, so that's one hope I have. Um, yeah, and, 
and you know another, another hope is is that the, that it would potentially just um, allow for the possibility of less um, divisiveness between those thinking about animal ethics and those thinking about disability bioethics and more potential for um, a, a recognition of um, potential overlapping concerns you know and, and overlapping ethical interests um, that yeah would, would foster you know improved outcomes for everybody those are my hopes yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a great paper and hopefully it achieves those hopes for you. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been great to speak with you. You too. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Catherine's paper linked in this episode's notes along with the transcript. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.